0: We're continuing our series through the book of Exodus. We'll begin in chapter 9 today. We're looking at the plagues, and the literary structure of the plagues is interesting. They happen in a cycle of three, uh, 1 through 3, 4 to 6, 7 through 9, and then you've got the climax of number 10. The cycle always starts in the morning, so plagues 1, 4, and 7 are always getting up early in the morning in order to go talk to Pharaoh second plague always starts with God saying, Go tell Pharaoh. And the third plague is, uh, uh, always begins without any kind of warning. So it's an interesting literary cycle. And what we're going to do this morning is look at the last cycle, plagues seven through nine. These are the scariest plagues, hail, locusts, and darkness, uh, right before the climax plague of the death of the firstborn or Passover. So we'll begin uh, with the plague of hail in exodus chapter 9 verse 13 it began like one and four in the morning moses went to pharaoh to speak on behalf of god Uh, chapter 9 verse 13 thus says the lord the god of the hebrews let my people go that they may serve me and you know the story Uh, pharaoh refused and so god threatened hail and the interesting thing here is that there were Egyptians who heard about what God had threatened and they actually went to find shelter. And so this wasn't like the first plague where everyone was like, oh yeah, this weirdo from the the wilderness who's threatening this stuff from a God we've never heard of. They've learned from the previous six plagues that when Moses comes and says, here's what my God has told me to say, that they ought to pay attention. So a bunch of the Egyptians around Pharaoh who heard that Moses had Uh, made this threat on behalf of God. They actually went and found shelter. They took their slaves and they put their uh, livestock and they put them inside uh, in order to avoid this particular uh, plague. But Pharaoh didn't listen. Verse 23, the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail. So there was a big storm that was happening here. It says very heavy hail. Such as had never been seen in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were. There was no hail. Well, I've seen in my life, small hail. Have any of you seen golf ball sized hail? Yeah, there have been a few of you who have seen golf ball sized hail. Yeah. How about baseball-sized hail? I saw some of that. uh, I looked it up on the Internet. You have? Where? What state? Uh, Oklahoma. Oklahoma. That's pretty awesome. Well, I saw pictures of golf-ball-sized hail uh, on the Internet this morning, and, of course, that size hail will break car windows and things like this. So big hail is scary. I've never seen, seen big hail, but big hail is scary. And verse 25 says that it beat down everything. Plus, you have the thunder and the lightning. So this was a major display of God's power. The frogs, if you think back a few plagues, the frogs were more annoying than scary, right? I mean, they were annoying. They were climbing all over everything. I'm sure when they died, it was a public health disaster. So it wasn't like the plagues were funny, but they were more annoying than, than scary. Uh, but hail was scary. And a lot of people died. A lot of animals died. A lot of crops died. And then you have that verse 26, only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. And so this proved that it was a miracle. It was not just a natural disaster that Moses comes along afterwards and says, there, see, that was the judgment of God on this country. No, this was before the hail started. Moses said, here's what's going to happen And the land of Goshen was protected. And I love how visual this whole plague is. Uh, the, 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 this cycle of plagues are very, very visual. You can imagine this hole in the clouds with sun shining down on God's people and people dying all around. Now, this time, Pharaoh actually responded to the plague by confessing sin, and he asked Moses to pray, but as soon as the plague stopped, then uh, Pharaoh changed his mind again. And so that brings us to the plague of locusts. Chapter 10, verse one, then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. Let me just read that again, because that is really important to understand as we're figuring out who is God, what is God like, how should I act toward God? We need to see God doing this here. He says, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. So that's a purpose statement when you see that little phrase so that so here's what I'm doing says God and I'm doing it so that so. It starts by saying, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. I have hardened Pharaoh's heart. Why does God do that? He does that so that he can show these signs, he says. God wanted to perform these plagues. He didn't want to do just three plagues. He wanted to do more than three, more than five, more than eight. He wanted to do ten plagues. And he says, well, why? Why? And he says, so that you may tell future generations. And so this is part of what God wants his reputation to be. God wants to do these 10 plagues so that future generations, not just of Jews, but all God's people, including us, would retell these stories. Well, why does God want us to retell these stories? Because they're fun stories? Because they're entertaining? No, he says, that you may know that I am the Lord. And so God's purpose behind all of this is worship. God wants to be worshiped. God wants people all over the globe, when they hear this story, when they hear about what happened, and he wanted the people that were immediately experiencing this to know that he is God. He is supreme over all creation, and he commands worship. Verse 3, So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country. And they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail. And they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to them, how long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? I think that's very interesting to watch people disagreeing with Pharaoh. Do you not understand? This is not how people talked to Pharaoh except these plagues had gotten so intense. Here we are just about uh, one of the last couple of plagues here. The the plagues had gotten so intense that even people around Pharaoh were starting to question the Pharaoh. Surprising conflict around the great Pharaoh. But still, nobody actually thinks about obeying God. They propose this half measure. Let the men go. Let's hang on to the women, the kids, and all the animals and everything. Let the men go out, do whatever that thing is they want to do out in the wilderness, and then let them come back. Maybe that'll appease them. Verse 8. So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, we will go out with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, the Lord be with you. If I ever let you and your little ones go, look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go the young men among you and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out of the Pharaoh's presence. All right, so that is not what God had commanded. God is the king of kings. God is Pharaoh's king, even though Pharaoh doesn't recognize any authority over himself. God will not be appeased by any kind of half measure. And so then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land. All that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt And the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, no ever will be seen again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened, and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained neither tree nor plant of the field, through all the land of Egypt. Now this was a bad plague. The bugs were so thick that everything went dark. Have you seen that in Oklahoma? No? The bugs were so thick that everything went dark, at least with the hail you could go inside, right? With the hail... If if it didn't get you on your out in the field, at least you could go inside, and it probably made a horrible racket. It was scary and everything, but at least you could get away from it. But these locusts flew everywhere. And they were inside the palace, and they were inside people's homes, and they were in people's inside people's sleeping bags. They were everywhere. So again, these plagues are intensifying. They're getting scarier. Verse 16 then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore Forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea, which is, some people have said, that's an interesting foretaste of what's about to happen to the Egyptian army. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, And he did not let the people of Israel go. Well, that was plague eight. And remember, these come in a cycle of three. So we've got one more in the cycle. The climax was going to be plague ten, the death of the firstborn. We know it as Passover. It was adopted by Christ as communion. One of the greatest acts of God in all history was that tenth plague. But first we have number nine, the plague of darkness, which pitch black for three days. And remember, these plagues are intensifying. So what kind of darkness are we talking about here? What caused the darkness? Some people think that it might have been some kind of cloud cover or smoke, but that just doesn't sound like a climax plague to me. This is not called the plague of clouds. That's just not very scary, right? I mean, if we're comparing that to you've got the hail, people dying, and then you've got locusts, and then clouds. Woo, like clouds are not very scary. It's not called the plague of clouds. There have already been clouds for hail and lightning coming out of them. That's scary, but just clouds. How is that the penultimate plague? Exodus 10:22: Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. I'm not sure that that was just clouds. You know, during the last 100 years, people have had naturalistic explanations for the plagues. Maybe the Nile turned red like blood from some kind of a mudslide or sediment or microorganism or something. And maybe the gnats came from so many dead frogs or something like this. And these explanations, I think, underestimate the intelligence of ancient peoples. In Exodus chapter 7, we're told, In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, Moses lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. Pharaoh was not an idiot. All of his uh, advisors and so on standing around, nobody went down there and said, Hey, wait a minute, this is just mud. It was blood. They looked down into the Nile and they saw blood. They saw 10 natural disasters that went way past normal, way past anything they'd ever seen before. They saw plagues that started and stopped exactly when Moses said they would. Exodus chapter 7, verse 21, All the water in the Nile turned into blood, and the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Even the Psalms, Psalm 78 uh, reviews the Exodus, and the psalmist says he turned their rivers to blood so that they could not drink their streams. Naturalistic explanations underestimate the intelligence of ancient peoples. Oh, well, they were kind of silly, so they probably thought it was blood, but it wasn't actually blood. You have a whole country of people who think it's blood, so it probably was blood. And naturalistic explanations also diminish the reality of the spiritual realm. We live in a post Newton worldview where everything needs to sound plausible. If you can't test it with the scientific method, then it's embarrassing. But Christians, we believe in a cosmos filled with angels and demons. We believe that a virgin gave birth. We believe God created space time out of nothing. We believe in things that the scientific method can't test. There was a time not too long ago that people believed in fairies. Educated people believed in fairies. Even Arthur Conan Doyle, the patron saint of modern television, uh, believed in fairies. Did you know that? Arthur Conan Doyle believed in fairies. And we think we've evolved now to think better. But I'm not sure that this has been an advance. I'm I'm afraid that we've uh, become blind to what the Bible calls better and lasting things, true treasure somewhere else, murderous, deceptive, unseen enemies. There are things out there that are not meant to be explained. A mind that is closed to anything beyond naturalistic explanations is attached to a heart that is closed to worship. And here's why: it's because worship goes beyond worship, goes beyond reason. Worship goes beyond reason. Worship is not illogical, but it goes beyond reason to become something that we call awe. The God of this world, the lowercase g God of this world, wants to blind our minds to truths that produce awe. If He can nudge us to put our theology in some dusty realm of books, boring books theology the knowledge of God if he can get us to put that theology in some dusty boring realm and if he can get us to believe that we can analyze and understand all things if we just put it under the microscope then he has effectively diminished the realities that actually make a difference in our hearts because we were designed to worship Satan shows us football players and transformers and rock stars so that we will feel awe for other things. We were designed for worship, and so he helps us to see other things so that we won't think too hard about what might have actually happened during the ten plagues when God ripped open creation to display his supremacy over the natural realm and over all mankind so that every generation who heard this story would bend their knees and worship. You know, the psalmist gets it. Psalm 78 describes the plagues. It says, He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave their lives over to the plague. Christian, don't be embarrassed when the Bible talks about things like worldwide floods, Jonah in the belly of a whale, people walking on water. How silly. Jesus coming back on a white horse. These truths are are more in line with reality than what the world wants us to see. So we should love science. We should love physics. These things help us understand the world that God has made. And I think uh, American evangelicals have become anti-intellectual toward things that science can reveal, but understand those limitations. Learn to do what Pharaoh refused to do, which is to see beyond the comfortable worldview to the realities that actually save and ruin people. Ephesians 4.17, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So this plague of darkness, this penultimate plague, this plague that is, that is growing and growing and growing until we finally have the climax plague, this plague of darkness was disturbing Everything went pitch black, and I'm not sure that it was just cloud cover or temporary blindness on the part of an entire country. This absence of light for several days went beyond anything that the Egyptians could understand. Their sun god, Ra, was impotent. Their pharaoh was impotent. And the one true God was wielding creation for his glory. And once again, Pharaoh called Moses and he gave permission for the people to go, but no animals, no livestock this time. It was another half measure, no real submission to Yahweh, the creator, his king. And so this led to the final plague, the death of the firstborn, which we will explore later. I want to look at a couple of ideas that come from the plagues, a couple of theological ideas that come from the plagues. As we look back on these three cycles, one through three Four through six, four, five, six, seven through nine. This last last cycle was the worst. You know, on the first day of creation, God created light. And on the last plague, before the final judgment, God uncreated light. There's a connection between creation and the plagues. Lots of key words that are similar. God created green trees at creation, and he destroyed them during the plagues. God created waters teeming with fish at creation, and the fish died during the plagues. God put humanity over the animals at creation to name them, to rule them. But during the plagues, creatures turned on humanity, dominated and killed them. On the last day of creation, God made man, and during the tenth plague, God unmade man by killing the firstborn throughout the country. The plagues were an undoing, an unraveling of creation. It's like everything was coming apart. Creation was much more than God creating out of nothing. There is that, and that's wonderful. But there's more happening in that first chapter of Genesis. At creation, the earth, we are told, was formless and void. And what happens during that chapter is God brought order and purpose to creation. But during the plagues, a society that was falsely ordered was devolved into a destructive chaos, a destructive formless and void. See, all creation is designed to live under God. That's how God made us. He designed us to live inside the the safety and provision of an ordered society. And that order comes from himself, from his spirit, from his word, from his throne and the plagues show us a small taste of what happens when people refuse to live inside that order. Jesus is called the King of Kings, and Paul tells us that God has a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth, Ephesians 1.10. And that has to do with order and purpose. It has to do with submission underneath God's rule. And this describes what is supposed to happen in the kingdom now through the ministries of the church. But even that is a foretaste of the end times. Some of the last words of the Bible, Revelation 22, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter, so we have an inside, so that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers, and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. There is an inside and an outside within the universe. And inside the universe, things work with order and purpose that flow from God's throne, and from God's word, and from God's spirit. But outside, you have disorder, you have chaos. Everything that is outside, submission to Christ. So the plagues showed us a little bit of what this is going to be like. The plagues were the uncreation. Teaching all people about the supremacy of Christ, about the supremacy of God over all creation, and the terrible consequences that come from rejecting our created purpose. So, how do we apply all of this? I think the Exodus ranks up there with just a couple of other events in the Bible. You've got creation and fall, you've got the Exodus, you've got crucifixion and resurrection. And then one future event that the Bible tells us about, the tribulation and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Those are the four major events of the Bible. And Exodus is right up there in importance. And you have key words and key ideas that appear throughout all four of those events. So let's just think as we close here about some of the similarities between creation, fall, Exodus, crucifixion, resurrection, and tribulation, second coming of Christ. First of all, we see in all of these scenarios the idea that mankind has been created to submit to God. We see that with Adam and Eve. They were told to obey God and live under him. They were walking with him in the cool of the day. Their life was ordered. God had created beauty and given them purpose to all the things in Eden and to Adam and Eve, except they rejected God's purpose they rejected God's throne we see this with Moses he was told at the burning bush to go to go to go and we see this with Pharaoh all of them being commanded to live underneath the rule of Yahweh mankind has been created to submit to God. Sin is the rejection of God's rule. We see this all through Scripture, too, including all of the high points of Scripture. Sin is the rejection of God's rule, and God punishes sin with death. We see that in all of those scenarios. We see that back in Eden. When Adam and Eve uh, sinned, they were put out of the garden, and the process of death began to work in them. They were told, if you eat, you will surely die and they've given us all this inheritance of death. We also see in all of these high points of Scripture that God saves us by grace. All of us have sinned. All of us deserve death. None of us can earn salvation. And yet in all of the scenarios that we see God working, we see grace also at work. Adam and Eve should have and could have died immediately when they ate from whatever that fruit was, except that God graciously allowed them to live And he put in place a rescue plan so that he could make a people for himself that would undo all of the problems at the fall. God saves by grace. We see that with Moses and the people there in Goshen. They were just as big of sinners as the Egyptians were. And they deserved all of these same plagues except God protected them. And he provided a way of escape. We also see that God is supreme over all creation. He's behind things like thunder. He's behind darkness. He's behind light. And he's behind all of the things that happen in his world and in his universe. We see that happening too. You see many similar plagues during the tribulation that happen uh, during the ten plagues uh, in Exodus. Some Some of the same plagues as God wields creation in order to bring judgment on those who have rejected him. We also see that God is supreme over all so-called gods. We don't live in a dualistic universe where uh, you have two equal powers like the force, like the Star Wars force, or like some religions where sometimes the good side wins and sometimes the bad side wins and they go back and forth. What you have is one king, one eternal God, one glorious God, and a bunch of rebellion under him. And God is supreme over all his enemies. God rules all so-called gods. This is true with demons. It's true with kings like Pharaoh. God is even sovereign over death. So these plagues were a form of divine warfare as God goes against the ancient gods of the Egyptians. This final uh, plague before number 10, the final one of the third cycle, he goes against their sun god, their main god, the one mostly associated with Pharaoh. All through scripture, we see that God demands obedience. We see this in Eden. We see this in Exodus, where God tells Moses what to do, where Moses tells Pharaoh what to do. Let my people go. It's not a suggestion. Hey, it would be really great if you could do such and such. But God is the ruler of all creation, and he demands obedience. He also demands worship. And we see this throughout Scripture, that God demands worship. Why did he do these ten plagues? And we saw in ten Uh, chapter 10, that you may tell future generations, tell your sons and your daughters so that generations of people would come from your family who would retell these stories of the 10 plagues so that they will know that God is supreme over all creation. He wants us to consider these great moments of scripture history and to respond to them with praise, with worship, with awe, with joy. We also see throughout all these major events of Scripture that God glorifies himself in all circumstances, including the disobedience. So you you, you think, wow, the wheels are coming off. People are being hurt here. Uh, You know, Joseph being sold into slavery, all of these kinds of things. And yet we see in every situation that God is able to work all things for good for those who love him. And throughout all these scenarios we see that God has mercy and God hardens whomever he wills. Daniel chapter 4:35 He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him what have you done. Well at the end of a sermon and I'd like to put the last few sermons together if we wad these plagues together after looking them looking at them for several weeks how should we respond? What's the application? You know, a good sermon should have an application. Go do something, or don't do something. But I'm not sure. I think I think with the plagues, I think it's important for us to understand the gravity of what happened at those plagues. They were awesome. They went beyond some kind of scientific explanation. These were massive displays of God's power as he was ripping open creation and showing us what happens when people live outside submission to Christ and also showing us a powerful example of his grace, bringing people out of a fallen world and into a land flowing with milk and honey. Great themes, great themes. But But does that mean that we should go do something? Should I go, you know, what, what, what should I tell you to do? And I think as we look at the plagues, it's more of knowing something, knowing what God is like, knowing his true attributes, understanding who he really is. You know, he, he wants us to look at these plagues, retell them to our kids, and think about, like, how awesome is Yahweh? How awesome is God? And that's one thing I would encourage, encourage all of us to do. It's been enjoyable looking through these plagues because you think, oh, I know the ten plagues. I've been going to church for 30 years or I've been going to church longer than that, actually. So how long have you been going to church? You've heard about the plagues. And yet when you read them and you think about what, it, what amazing thing that God is doing here, what a great God who is sovereign over human rulers, every human ruler who is sovereign over the universe and is able to wield creation toward his glory. It's important for us to consider the major things that God boasts about through scripture. He says, look what I did there, creation. Creation. Look what I did there at the Exodus. Look what I did there at the crucifixion and the resurrection. And I promise I'm going to do something else too. I'm going to come back. I'm going to make all things new. These are good things for us to think about. Good things for us to know. Hebrews 12, I'll finish with this. Hebrews chapter 12 says this. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's close in prayer. God in heaven, you are awesome and glorious. You sit on the throne over all creation and you rule all things. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to know you as you truly are. Help us to see you and your attributes. Help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. I pray that you would help us to understand these old stories that seem just like little Sunday school felt board stories until we actually start to look at them and consider the God behind them. Lord God, you are worthy of our worship. And I pray that for these next few songs that our worship would be true that you would help us with joy to worship you in your holiness and your glory and your power and your sovereignty and supremacy. We love you and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.